Welcome to the VoxGig Developer Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Roger. I speak to people in the software development community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. I'm the CEO of VoxGig, a software consultancy that builds DevRel tools. Because we believe in the power of community, we host a monthly virtual online meetup for everyone in developer relations. Check out devrelmeetup.com. And visit voxgig.com to view our work, use our tools, and sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Please sit back and enjoy my fireside chat with today's guest. If you work in developer relations, then you've probably heard of SmartBear. They are the people who look after Swagger. Today, I'm speaking to Frank Kilcommons about OpenAPI and making sure that we can standardize all these APIs for our own sanity. The tooling for all this stuff still has a long, long way to go, but the future is bright. All right, Frank, let's find out. Frank, welcome to the Fireside Box Gig podcast, talking about developer relations and APIs. It's fantastic to have you on today. You're based in the wonderful Galway, the west coast of Ireland. Is it raining? It is raining. Yes. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that wonderful Atlantic weather. But you have great surfing, right? Do you surf? I don't surf. No, I, I admire from the beach. Yeah, but yeah, well, yeah, lots of good surf on the west coast, actually. I think it's an underutilized um opportunity for for irish tourism i think uh really really good surf yeah yeah i believe so i, I don't i don't either i tried i tried it once it's actually hard it's a lot harder than it looks <laughs> <laughs> it uh, looks easy but yeah <laughs> absolutely okay well let's start with uh let's start with who you are how you got into the business of apis and smart bear T- tell us all yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Frank Kilcommons. Um, I'm a software engineer and architect by trade. And so I've been in the, the tech industry for going on 20 years at, at, at this stage. Um, started as a developer and moved from there into, into architecture. Um, and um, quite quickly, I suppose, the, the, the importance of being able to interface um, between different software components um, really a- appealed to me, um, both from a technical side, but I, I guess quite quickly I grokked the, the socio-technical aspect to it. Um, then in kind of uh, around 2010, started getting more serious around um, moving beyond just point-to-point integrations into having more more reusable uh, interfaces on offer um, that are serving business value to different channels. And um, yeah, a- APIs or web APIs, I guess, as we, as we call them or classify them, were becoming much more popular at the time. Of course, with the explosion of, of mobile apps and web portals around the same time. Um, but then realizing that you could actually, rather than re- relying on kind of proprietary footfall to those traditional solutions that you could actually expose the value in an integratable way to your partners, to your customers, and let them bring that value into their ecosystem. So that really uh, piqued my interest. And once I started dabbling and, and kind of architecting for those solutions, yeah, I, I didn't really see myself um, participating in the tech industry outside of that space. Yeah. Um, so I was very much always uh, engaged with, with companies working as part of API teams, standing up API programs, and got the opportunity to jump over the fence. And instead of being critical of the tooling that's in the space, get to work for a tooling company who's fundamentally part of uh, the API space. Um, so that's uh, what appealed to me when I jumped over to, to SmartBear um, about two and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, so I'm about two and a half years uh, 
with SmartBear, very much focused in the API side of, of the business there. Um, but of course, we have kind of three fundamental pillars in SmartBear. One is API. The other is kind of more traditional testing and test management across different flavors of software, not just APIs. And then we also have, have an insights and observability um, offering as well. And this is manifesting itself by us offering three different flavors of hubs towards the, the broader uh, customer base that we serve in API, in test, and then in, in insight, as we call it. And there's, of course, natural synergies between those pillars as well. Oh, completely. I mean, it's it's like your uh, dev tool stable, right? SmartBear kind of acquires different tools, I think. Isn't that how you've grown? or Because there's yeah, lots of different do. ones, right? Yeah, so we would definitely classify ourselves as an inquisitive company. And um, so we're, we, we generally have kind of, I guess, two strategies. One is um, build and one is buy. Um, yeah. I guess traditionally over the last couple of years, we've been fitting into that maybe buyer motion a little bit more um, and, and exploring acquisitions. Um, the last year and a half was also a bit of a pivot for us where we we launched uh, lots of new organic uh, products that we built from the bottom up as well. So now we're, we're very much kind of straddling those two different, um, I guess, profiles from a company perspective. And, and we think that suits us very, very well, because if we see a niche, we can go after it and we can also then accelerate um, our ability to execute there through acquisition as well. For sure. You doing anything with machine learning? Or are you allowed to say it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we actually require, uh, acquired a company um, just a couple of weeks ago called uh, Reflect, uh, so reflect.run. Uh, so they're all around um, AI in, in the, the testing space, um, specifically kind of um, UI testing um, and also visual testing um, and, and yeah, stepping a little bit yeah, into, the, into the API space as well. So yeah, we're very excited about, about that acquisition and what it means for the broader portfolio as well. So I mean, you but are everyone classic... is kind of an AI these yeah. days. Oh, you know? yeah, I have you have yeah. to be. Uh, so I mean, you are a classic dev tools company. A lot, I mean, a lot of dev dev tools companies that we talk to, there's it's one tool. <laughs> Whereas you guys have been around for a while, and you, like I said, you have this kind of stable. Um, so my question is uh, on the business side, right? You're selling to developers. Um, so do you focus on marketing directly to developers? Like, how do you model that side of things? And I'm thinking I'm thinking from the perspective of somebody who's a developer advocate, maybe working for a dev, dev, dev tools company, trying to understand the business process or the sales funnel or the mechanism for getting money in and putting food on the table. Yeah, um, I think one of the things we... We understand and, and and we kind of step back and, and generally try to cr critique ourselves and keep ourselves honest with regards to how we we view the, let's say, the different personas that that are involved in modern software delivery. And developers is, of course, you know, a very strong persona. And of course, there's there's different segmentations within that as well. Um, but there's also other stakeholders who are very, very interested mm -hmm. in the software development lifecycle. Um, so software um in 2024 is is the nuts and bolts of 99.9 percent .9 of businesses i would say you know there's very little bricks and mortar operations that don't heavily rely on software behind the scenes as well and um, so we're we're intimately aware that there's other stakeholders that that need to be engaged in the process so we need to be able to um 
talk to the problems that they're facing and 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 teach um, through good examples and good use cases that we can actually help them solve their problems. And um, focusing on the developer, of course, and the tester personas and maybe SRE and DevOps is, is what would also be very much interested in, in our insights capabilities. You do, you do need to understand what, what challenges they face and how we can come in and help them overcome those challenges, how we can grow on scale with them, uh, how we can be open enough to integrate with the other tooling and procurement decisions that have been made within their organizations. And that's all about giving them the confidence that they can bake resiliency into their architecture, that they're not pigeonholed with a single provider like SmartBear, but we want to be open enough to be able to integrate into that broader stack, but being universal enough so that when they are dealing with SmartBear tools, that they can have this seamless experience across the tools throughout the different dots along the delivery lifecycle. Got it. And so here's a challenge I've I've had, and this is actually on the on the on the user end of things, right? So um, as dev, I've often ended up using tools that have a significant utility for the project that I'm working on, but I'm using the free version because, of course, that's the only way to get up and running with a particular project. And then you end up in a scenario where you're trying to justify the utility or the importance of a particular tool even to you know reliability of the system to a client or a project owner. And you're trying to say, right, well, okay, this is going to cost you $100 a month or whatever. Um, and you often hit a brick wall with that. You know, So you end up in scenarios where, let's say, it's a testing tool where you run out of test allocations halfway through the month, right? And then when you do deployment, suddenly you can't validate the deployment anymore, right? <laughs> um, but it, it's because developers are developers and not salespeople. And I've, I've seen this uh, with, with other developers that I've worked with. I see it with the DevTools companies that we talk to. How do you get over this roadblock where the technical person, the developer knows, okay, use this tool is really good. I need to, but we need, we need to be able to actually use the commercial version now. Do you guys help people get over that? Is that part of your sales process? How do you deal with that? Yeah, it it is part of the process. Um, you know, the champion within any organization is, is incredibly important to a tooling vendor. Um, so you need to be able to have a very good working relationship with the champion. You need to understand what um, challenges um, that person may face in his or her role, what they're specifically uh, trying to achieve and what goal. Um, and then try and collaborate with them to understand, okay, what's their manager? What's their manager's manager trying trying to deal with? What problems are they facing? Is there a way that we can help them elevate um, the learning from the current project uh, so that it can help maybe the organization more at scale? So it's kind of a joint thought leadership exercise. It's also making sure that there's enough open knowledge and information there for the, the champion. Um, and what we've learned as well is that being able to come in and support the champion with those pitches um, to maybe the, the executive buyer persona um, really does help. You know, you need to be able to understand the technical challenges that are on the floor, but you need to be able to understand the, the bigger business challenges or even opportunities that might be left on the table um, if there is a lack of awareness um, within the organization itself. 
Yeah, you kind of, you know, even once you've got a developer using the system, you still, the sale isn't done, right? You still need to, <laughs> you still need to understand all those other personas. Um, yeah, and it, it's a learning journey. So we yeah. often try to really partner with with our customers and understand that, you know, just getting the tool in the door is is the first um, step in the journey. You know, you don't want to have to be fighting a battle every every renewals um, date either. You need to be ensuring that there's sufficient value being obtained. Um, so you need to bring uh, the customer along with you um, through that learning journey. We we put a lot of time into into resources like our our academy um, to make sure that there's information there to continue to upskill uh, the users of our tools. Right. Um, so from okay. from a packed flow perspective, we have what's called a packed flow university. Um, we have a smartware academy, and and they're good, very good learning resources for our our customers and or or prospects. Um, and often what I would say is you want to be also able to grow with your customer. So, you know, I'm not a pricing and packaging expert by any means, but I am a technical practitioner. So I don't want there to be too many feature sets locked behind um, different paywalls. And um, what I do want to do is have all of the features that I need to solve my problems available to me. And then I'm more in, uh, I'm more willing uh, to kind of scale to a higher um, price point uh, as the, the benefits are there for me as a customer. So as more teams in my organization are looking to uh, obtain the same value that I've got from a product suite, then we start thinking about, okay, now we have other enterprise challenges that we want uh, to see solved that are outside of the remit of specific practitioner challenges. So kind of splitting along that access is also a way to reduce the friction of trying to scale to, to multiple teams within within a customer base. Yeah, this is there's so many different things to think about. I I, I want to come back particularly to this idea of uh, helping existing users grow right, and, and learn as a strategy for improving retention. Uh, don't see that executed hugely by many people. Right? Is, is, is that something you guys have leaned into, you found works really well? Um, I guess we're fortunate where we have um, a very good pre-sales and post-sales set of uh, teams, and both on the solution engineering side, um, as well as on the post-sales side from a customer success point of view, um, and that that's growing. Um, and we're also always kind of looking to to refine and improve those different levels of customer support packages that can be made available and learn from our customer bases. Um, we also have lots of touch points with our customers and we keep them in the loop um, through different types of um, advocacy and kind of partner programs so we can kind of co-innovate and co-develop co together. And that also strengthens partnerships in the long run. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it, right? Because a lot of companies just focus on, okay, get the sign up, take the credit card, and then, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Good yeah, luck. That's it. Uh, whereas actually, that's that's only when that's only when the journey is about to begin. That's when the journey right? begins, really. <laughs> yeah. And but I guess you know, even going back to 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 earlier steps in the process, you know, we're we're 
we participate quite a lot um, from an open source perspective as well. So we want to make sure that we can also solve challenges for individuals. Um, and that also is a, is a good way to get advocates for your capabilities who are outside of um, SmartBear, um, but they see value in particular tools and libraries. They're solving their own problems. They've become champions even before that um, procurement question or opportunity is even on the table. Um, and that really also reduces the, the onboarding friction when it comes to the enterprise solution. So you're really thinking about a progressive enhancement of the experience and reducing the need for um, an external team to have to kind of manage the glue that often is required when you're dealing with different open source uh, offerings. I mean, SmartBear and you, know, you guys are, are like all in on open source, clearly. Do you think that's a, a necessary requirement? If I'm running a dev tools company and I'm, I don't have open source, or don't par really participate in open source or support it or have my own projects, like how much of a bad thing is that? Um, I don't I don't have a strong opinion on if you need to or not. Um, I think it works in certain uh, arenas. Maybe it doesn't work in, in others. You know, open source is a big investment for for a company to make as well. You know, open source is is far from free. Um, there there there's a lot of true, true. time, effort, and and love and passion that goes into maintaining open source projects, keeping them properly patched. Um, and we're we're not an open source for open source sake company. We're we're probably tilting more on the open core side, where we have open source offerings that are then fundamentally um, pulled in also to our our commercial um, variants, um, and that's also so that we can kind of potentially move faster on the innovation side and closer to the edge when it comes to, especially in the API side of the business, keeping closer to. Uh, advancements in specifications, we can kind of do that more broadly with the community. And then once things settle down a little bit, we can we can start bringing that in in a natural path into our uh, commercial product variant. Yeah, I can see how that would be important for you guys, right? Because the, the specifications are kind of fundamental to your business. Actually, that gives me a chance to segue into another question that I want to ask you. You've you've done a lot with open API, right? Um, Maybe you could give us some insight, and let, let's assume zero knowledge, right? Maybe you can give us some insight into why. why. Why does it exist? What is it trying to do? How successful has it been? Um, yeah, so um, Open API and the Open API Initiative, of course, is a um, an open source project that's housed under the Linux Foundation. And that is the the group that um, drives forward the open API specification. Um, I'll get into other specifications that are also falling in under that umbrella uh, in a couple of moments. Um, but the open API specification itself is um, an industry standard mechanism for describing HTTP based APIs and doing so in a way that is sufficiently human readable because you know we all love YAML and JSON, um, but also in a way that's machine readable, which means it gives lots of interop benefits towards practitioners who are either building or consuming APIs. So because there's a standard mechanism for describing how these things work, it means that um, 
the tooling ecosystem that has been built up around it is now rich and robust. So companies who want to uh, expose a REST or REST-ish type of API doesn't have to go about building a lot of proprietary tooling for how they want to do that. They can benefit from most vendors in the space um, banking on the fact that um, they will make sure that there's support for the open API specification. And that means that it's easy for someone to get tools to help them with design, help them with development, help them with testing, help them with um, publishing the API into various gateways and productizing it from a developer portal standpoint. Also then being able to observe what's happening in production. And the reason that that kind of process is streamlined is because all of the tools bake and compatibility with the standard into what they're doing, making life easier for everyone on the on the provider team side and ultimately on the consumer team side. So let me ask you a practical question on that, right? So the, all of that is fabulous. <laughs> it's all wonderful. Uh, yet my day-to-day -day experience, if I'm building stuff on Amazon or Google or Azure, still kind of sucks, right? The term API gateway strikes fear into my heart. <laughs> I don't even begin with cores configuration, right? Um, why is why are we not at the point where I can write an OP, open API spec, press a button, and there's my lambdas, and everything's everything's configured for me? Why do I still have all this friction? Um, I think uh, the the challenge that we faced in the Open API initiative is really making sure that tooling vendors kind of level par um, with regards to um, the adoption of the spec or let's say certifying. Certif certification is a difficult topic. It's a topic that we're discussing within the OAI, but it's a, it's a topic that's far from agreed with regards to how we should uh, approach it best. But in an ideal world, you would have all tools with the same level of support for the specification. And running of course, from same, running from the same specification, right? So I don't have custom configuration. Obviously, cloud vendors don't like that, right? But, but still. Exactly. Um, and there are different versions, of course. So um, Open API would have started as the Swagger specification before it, it changed name as part of donating the spec um, to the Linux Foundation. Um, so sw Swagger from a specification perspective equals OpenAPI 2.0. Um, and since then, we've had OpenAPI 3 um, and a few minor uh, revisions or patch revisions thereof. Also OpenAPI right. 3.1. So should, should um, we say OpenAPI now? Is Swagger sort of a... Swagger is the term? tools. So, so Swagger is a is the set of open source tools that we at SmartBear maintain and drive forward. And that's part of the core of our Swagger Hub um, kind of commercial offering and feeds into our, our API hub. But if we talk about the specification from a, let's say, correct taxonomy perspective, we should refer to it as Open API. Open API. Um, that 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 would be the correct way to refer to it. But there's the three versions out there right now. We've we've struggled as an open source kind of organization to uh, get vendors to uh, support all versions kind of in the same cadence. So it is a little bit of a challenge, which means you have to kind of be 
um, parsing up and down to, to different versions, dropping features on and off, depending on where you need to kind of exchange these artifacts. And, and that can cause a little bit of of friction. Um, but the world is improving. And you talked about API gateways and API management. And yeah, that, that was always a big, heavy, bloated thing. Um, but we've entered the 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 era of um, the great unbundling, as it's been termed in the industry, which is the fact that it's very unlikely that you will get an API management vendor to solve all of the challenges that you have in an organization when it comes to building APIs. So it's much more um, practical that a modern enterprise in 2024 will have uh, tools from uh, a whole plethora of vendors and they will be servicing their API lifecycle needs. And again, that puts even more importance on leveraging specifications. And that's one of the areas that we really focus on from a smarter perspective as well is making sure that we can enable teams to have this kind of multi-protocol, multi-specification approach. So if they're using different versions of open API or if they're using async API, which is like a sister specification, but more for describing and more event-based APIs, and that all of those those will work, ensuring that we can support all versions of of JSON schema there as well, and then stepping into into GraphQL and and other types of specifications and moving forward too. Some would say, which is a great vision, right? Some would say that one of the holy grails of that is that I could press a button and spit out an SDK in my own language, whatever it is, right, Rust or whatever, um, and off I go. I've got a wonderful developer experience talking to a given API, right? As opposed to having to write HTTP calls in my code, which really sucks. Um, but my experience of generated SDKs also sucks, really, right? The best developer experiences I've had with published APIs of production services um, have always been with handcrafted SDKs. Uh, I mean, in, in particular, in the last month, uh, I migrated uh, from one fintech API to another. The original one had an SDK. The new one didn't. Lots of pain ensues. Um, so, where do we where do we end up? Do, is is it possible to achieve that holy grail where you could generate SDKs that are nice to use, or is there a fundamental issue where you still have to? manually define a conceptual model that gives you great DX, and you're always going to have to do that by hand? Um, it's it's probably a little bit of a mixed bag, being honest, uh, uh, in today's climate. Um, so of course, you know, we have um, code gen capabilities um, from a Swagger perspective. Uh, there's other variants out there. Um, Microsoft have, have tooling in, in, in the same way. Uh, as well, Speakeasy are bringing out some interesting mm. tooling, as well as uh, API Matic. Uh, so there's a lot of effort and focus going into the SDK experience. I think even if you look at Stripe as an organization, they're driving consumers towards their SDK first. And then if you don't get what you want there or you don't like that experience, then you can access the the actual APIs as as a second yeah. choice, Yeah. Um, which is, okay, they're potentially only one of the, the companies doing that. But again, they have a very good use case for it, which which others may not. Um, one of the things, and, and I kind of mentioned it 
slightly earlier talking about more specifications now coming in under the Open API initiative umbrella. Now, one of those new specifications, which I'm actually heavily involved in, is called the workflows specification. And it's about describing deterministic recipes for achieving particular business use cases through the consumption of APIs. Because in today's world, if you want to achieve something uh, through APIs, um, in 99.999% of the time, you need to do more than just call one single endpoint. You probably need to do a sequence of calls, maybe potentially yeah. that even spans multiple different APIs that are described in different open API description files. Um, and the workflow specification comes in to target that explicit problem. And one of the use cases that we really see benefiting is having the ability then to create very deterministic use case oriented SDKs. Um, one of the problems that exists today, of course, if you don't kind of support by handcrafting um, the SDK, if you just generate it off an open API uh, description, is that you get everything. So you get kind of the whole boilerplate, um, sync, cup, uh, everything else included. Uh, which uh, incurs a lot of bloat into that code, and maybe you're only interested in one specific use case. If you have a workflow describing that use case, then you can generate an SDK that is tailored specifically for that use case. So as a developer interacting with that SDK, you're not distracted by any other paths that are taking you away from your primary goal or the problem that you're trying to solve. So you're not going to go off-piste and go down an uncharted track, you're going to stay on, on the road to extracting that value as quickly as possible. I suppose it's fair to say this is still open territory, right? We're, we're still we're still figuring this stuff out. Uh, still figuring it out, yeah. 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 And I mean, we're going to see things like uh, machine learning-based code generation where you point it at an, at, an, at, an, at, an, at an API or an open API spec and out pops an SDK. Although... <laughs> <laughs> Not sure I trust that code just yet. Yeah, uh, that's happened. There's some interesting startups there as well. I think, yeah, um, Superface are, are, are an that's interesting right. yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, um, there, there's there, there's some things happening there. Um, like from an open AI, open API initiative point of view, again, you know, this that's also a use case that the workflow specification is targeted towards. It's again around giving that deterministic recipe to large language models uh, so that if they do want to have that NLP abstraction um, to help an end user perform a task, and that task involves um, calling one or multiple APIs, they, they know exactly how to do that. And we can do that in a way that is not incurring a, a, a thing that I'm calling. Um, it's a bit like, um, you know, back end for front end types of anti-patterns, um, it's again, an, uh, avoiding the LLM for, for front-end scenario where yeah. you're customizing your API with the semantics that will work for one large language model, which isn't going to bring good interop possibilities when you start dealing with multiple. Um, but again, if you do so with a workflow spec and if the different models start supporting that, so if you think of OpenAI and their manifest plugin. Right now, you can reference an open API description. But if you could also reference a workflows uh, description, then it will make it much, much easier for, for us to have kind of a natural language conversation with these models to achieve something use case oriented offered by one or multiple APIs. Yeah. 
And how far along are we? I mean, with the space, so I know the space. Like, ChatGPT can can talk to APIs, right? So it can, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't think. But how don't satisfied think are you with that? I mean, um, I think getting the right levels of determinism is is the problem. So in the experiments that I've run, I have never been fully satisfied with the way models will interact with the with the APIs. And it's not necessarily the model's fault. I think a lot of it is down to the quality of how the APIs are described. And a lot of assumptions have to be made. And inevitably, uh, there isn't a good way um, through GenAI to, to kind of limit how those assumptions can be made. Um, and what happens, as I say, is that lots of additional semantics start being included with the response bodies to make it a little bit little bit more deterministic for the models. But again, I, I think that type of pattern is a pattern that's going to hurt the, 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 the tech space and the API space in the long run. That's why we're working on improving the, the standards and the specifications to make this a little bit more robust. So that's one of the things that the workflow spec is focusing on, but also the next um, version of OpenAPI, which is OpenAPI 4, codename Moonwalk, uh, which has been um, crafted this year, probably will not be rubber stamped until 2025. Um, but again, that's also one of the things that that is going to be improving, improving the semantics for machine to machine communication. You know, you, you've hit on something that I've observed in, we've been involved with some machine learning projects as well, mostly uh, rag-based systems. And one of the things we've observed with these is the more rigorous the data that you put into the system, the more specified it is, the less ambiguous. The better the results for the ambiguous user queries, right? Uh, so the problem isn't really, you know, tune the model uh, to make it better at dealing with APIs. I mean, for, my interpretation of what you're saying is that, you know, to, 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 to have a better DevX around machine learning when you're dealing with APIs, you've really got to start with tightening up your APIs, getting them properly spec out, right? Uh, Correct. And I, I, I mean, that's, it's sort of ironic that a, a, a lot of the quality of the fuzzy interaction, <laughs> the front end, the human language interaction is requiring uh, much greater rigor on the back end. And not just in the API space, all for all sorts of data sets. Uh, so that's a bigger trend. Yeah, I, I think it's been um, it, it's been brought probably rightly into sharper focus now, yeah. where everyone is expecting that they can start moving faster because of the the innovation that's happening um, tangential um, in in the AI space. But it's an old problem, you know. So the 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 socio technical aspect of a APIs has always been there, and if you can't um, translate the value on offer from an API to the business stakeholders and, and the broader team or the consumer team of an API, again, it's pointing back to the fact that you've done probably not the best job that you should have done with describing how this interface and this thing is going to work. Yeah. Well, it's it's good that there's a natural forcing function now, right? To tighten all this <laughs> stuff up. Uh, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna end with one kind of final question, which is, um, are you happy that you ended up working in APIs? Right? Was it a was it a fundamental choice back in the day, or a lucky accident? Um, I don't think it was an accident. Um, I think no matter what type of um, technology you're offering. And now APIs are going to play a role in some shape or form. Uh, I was probably tr thrown into it um, pretty deep, pretty early on um, with, with some big enterprise projects where APIs were absolutely critical to the success of it. And I guess I grokked very early that it's not a technical challenge necessarily no. to deliver no. these things. No. It's a real human people challenge to delivering APIs. And that's why I'm always sorry with the, or sorry for the acronym of application programming interface, because it makes it very difficult to be in a, in a room of, of business sponsors and trying to get them to fund your API program because they immediately think, this yeah, is yeah, just a techie yeah. asking for money again. <laughs> yeah. um, but really, it's it's fundamental to the success of the company that they are responsible for. So if it was all people inclusive or, um, you know, all product interface or something like that, it, yeah. it, it might be a little bit a little bit easier to get them. Sales, get them on sales the and marketing interface. <laughs> <laughs> Profit. Yeah. Profit gate. Yeah, but I, I think if you look across different industries now, like um, both from a regulatory perspective, but also from an actual transactional perspective, APIs are absolutely critical. So yeah. it's never been easier to be able to articulate the need and 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 the value for doing things the right way. Um, and what, where, what I'm tasked with now is helping make sure that we can drive tooling into the places, meet the different practitioners who are um, uh, are working with APIs and making sure they have what they need to make their company successful when it comes to delivering APIs, doing so in a way that's open enough. So again, it's integrating well with the different tools that are there, um, but also making sure that it's backed and baked on top of of standards to make sure that um resiliency is 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 baked into it from the start apis are going nowhere uh, richard they are fundamentally the, the the mechanism of of ensuring that software can can communicate to each other yeah deeply just fundamental infrastructure can't, can't get away from them i'm going away from this conversation with a lovely new phrase socio-technical i'm gonna i'm gonna be putting that to use i guarantee it frank <laughs> thank Good you so stuff. much this has been wonderful thank you take care my Peace. pleasure Richard. bye 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 you can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on the podcast section of our website voxgig.com podcast subscribe to the voxgig developer relations podcast on apple spotify or any podcasting platform we publish each tuesday and thursday you can also access the archive of our meetup talks on the VoxGeek YouTube channel or the VoxGeek website. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.